0: Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my distinctly unbastardly friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this, our 100th episode and season 3 finale, we talk about the challenges and joys of a career in academia. Helping to ensure that we don't let the bastards grind us down are the voices of three insightful assistant professors and three wonderful graduate students. Along the way, we also mention... Lining Up the Napkin, Hug-Free Zones, Margarita Night in 2003, Relying on the Kindness of Strangers, Strunk and White Voodoo, A Mile High Sea, Mr. October, Going Beyond the Veil, The Black Plague, Messages in Bottles, The Gates of the Citadel, Turning the Container Ship, Work-Work Balance, Being the Bad Guy, The Focus Group's in My Head, 50 cc's of Sodium Phenobarbital, That'll Do, Pig, Front Wheel Drive, Rear Wheel Drive, And attaboys. We hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: You and I are pretty good about hitting every week with a new episode. We've tried. Much to the chagrin of our families, (laughs) our students, our colleagues, (laughs) pretty much anybody we interact with. We try to get weekly. I can't help but notice we've gone two weeks without dropping an episode. Uh, yeah. We're going to take a little bit of a Vaseline lens trip down memory lane. All right, you have made significant efforts to pick shows to hit particular dates. Now, some make sense. Mm -hmm. We had an Irish storytelling that was on St. Patrick's Day. Live at the Rusty. We have holiday episodes, Mm -hmm. balls dropping, and (laughs) your LSD-induced reading of A Night Before Christmas.
0: T'was the night before... Well, a nondescript, inoffensive holiday of your choosing.
1: (laughs) Then it started to get a little tenuous. You had the haiku episode near National Haiku Day. I didn't mind that so much, but then you moved to picking entire topics just to get close to a date that's not even on the date. So we did an entire episode on information theory, which you wanted to post (laughs) it on April 12th. Because it was close to April 11th, yeah. which was 4-1-1. All right, so we established that great efforts go into this. <laughs> so when I see two holes in our schedule where we drop nothing, uh-huh. I can't help but wonder, did we skip two weeks just so that we could end the season on a 100th episode?
0: Uh,
1: I mean, I mean, I had a, a conference that I had to go to. and <laughs> uh, um, um. Okay, so that's where we're at. And this is coming from the man who won't let me do a special episode in recognition of Talk Like a Pirate Day, (laughs) where I legitimately proposed we do the entire episode where we talk like pirates. That's your accent for everything. (laughs) You should hear my Queen of England. Arr, where be the corgis? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. It's possible that we skipped a couple of weeks so we could get episode
0: number 100 to land as the last episode. You have to remember, I am the guy who puts 13 deodorant strokes under each arm in the morning. I'm the guy who sits at the dinner table and closes one eye and then tilts his head so that the napkin lines up with the counter <laughs> that lines up with the microwave. <laughs>
1: And it's really fun because I walk by and move the napkin and <laughs> yeah. then sit down and then watch the fun ensue. Yes, yes you do. <laughs> so this is indeed our 100th episode. Yeah. I, and I don't want to get too
0: celebratory about it, but it has been an amazing ride so far. And, you know, I kind of feel a hug
1: coming on. Is that, do you think we, maybe? Oh, dude. You so misread that. Come, come no. here. C- come here. No. Let- I wanted to design a jacket that was just covered with spikes. <laughs> no. No. This is, this is a hug-free zone. Well, in a hugless society, we are at episode 100.
0: Yeah. So in the spirit of our 100th episode, I have a little surprise
1: for you. Are you ready? Oh, no. <laughs> These never... The reading of The Night Before Christmas was a surprise. (laughs) Jiffy finding Francis Galton in the shower was a surprise. (laughs) Do I have a choice? I think you'll be okay with this. We have our Quantitude
0: hotline that people leave us voicemail messages on, and I have a voicemail message for
1: you. Oh, boy. Hello, this is Barack Obama. We just wanted to wish you gentlemen all the best on the occasion of your 100th episode. Michelle is still laughing about that thing Patrick did when you guys were over at the house. Very funny. Take care, my friends.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Nice, right? (laughs) Oh,
1: and it is so sweet that Michelle remembers that thing I did when we were over at the house. That was insane. Oh, my side hurts from that. All right, so we need a to topic. We thought it would be fun to pan back a little bit and talk about the challenges and joys of being in academics. And what gave us the idea? I was telling Greg a story a little while ago. A buddy of mine got jumped up to a pretty high position in the university. And it's funny because for younger folks, you see on campus the chancellor, and they're almost like a celebrity. It's like, oh my gosh, is is that her? Is that the chancellor? That's amazing. As you get older, mm-hmm. your friends and colleagues are the ones who jump up and you see the chancellor across campus and you say... Oh my God. I remember Margarita Night in 2003. Do we have absolutely no criteria for this position? (laughs) So a buddy of mine from way back got this position and I emailed him nothing more than an image of an engraved plaque that said, Illegitimi non-carborundum. That's all it said. And he emailed me back a little bit later, and he said, I've received hundreds of emails, and this is my favorite. Thank you, my friend. And that was it. Mm -hmm. For those of you who are not familiar, this is a made-up Latin term. And it comes out of World War II. Like anything like this, nobody's sure exactly where it came from. There are a half dozen different variations of it. But the illegitimi non-carborundum is kind of the core one. The illegitimi is a form of illegitimate. Mm-hmm. And the carborundum is an abrasive element that you put on in industrial sanding. And the interpretation is, don't let the bastards grind you down. And it's my favorite term that captures all of academics. Don't let the bastards grind you down. How uplifting, Patrick. <laughs> it is. Uh-huh. It is. I don't want to overinterpret a made-up thing from 80 years ago, but that's not going to stop me. I don't want to, but I'm going to. Yeah, you can't help it. Let's go to The Bastards, which is... There are people we interact with on a daily basis at all levels that we've got to work with them to do our work. We've got to work with them to train our students. There's this arc of people who we, by necessity, have to interact with. But the first part is don't let it reflects that you have some control over it. Mm. The term is not the bastards are going to grind you down. That's right. Don't let the bastards grind you down. I think that's really uplifting (laughs) because that gives some sense of agency to yourself that you have some degree of control over this. And I want to talk about that today. What are the challenges and what are the joys that go hand in hand because we have one of the best jobs on the face of the planet?
0: Agreed. Now, here's the thing. You and I are wicked old, and that means the challenges and obstacles that existed for us may or may not be the same as they are for people today. And it's entirely possible we forgot what we had to live through. So what we thought we would do is get the perspectives of people who are either just in academia, so relatively new assistant professors, or people who anticipate starting into academia relatively soon, so grad students.
1: We've got half a dozen people, and we asked for a single challenge and a single joy from each. Mm -hmm. We decided that we would start with the challenges and end with the joys. Yeah. So as we've done over many episodes in this podcast is we rely on the kindness of strangers. <laughs> See, I have that's, an accent that's not a pirate. That was less piratey than I expected. All right, to get us started
0: off, we're going to have a grad student and I'm just going to let her introduce herself.
3: Hello, my name is Murthy Mehta. I'm a PhD student in social psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. I study academic motivation. I'm interested in the way students think about themselves, about the nature of intelligence, and about their social context and how that affects their motivation in the classroom. The biggest challenge for me during my time in academia has been a lack of motivation, which A, as somebody that studies motivation, and B, as somebody that has wanted to study psychology since I was very young, like I knew by the time I was 13, 14, that this is what I wanted to do. It just felt like finding truths about human nature felt secondary to advancing your career. That was disappointing and disheartening.
1: So what a great place to start. Mm -hmm. You start in kindergarten. You navigate all of K through 12. You navigate all your undergrad. You bust your ass to walk in the door of grad school. And it's like, now what? Now I got to get geared up for the hardest thing that I've done yet.
0: Yeah, part of that for me is that your whole academic life up to that point has been fairly structured, right? People have laid tasks in front of you that have been curated to try to facilitate learning for you, whether it's learning to color inside the lines or to memorize the prologue to the Canterbury Tales, whatever. There's a whole sequence of things that you've gone through to get you to a particular point. And now when you get to graduate school, the common model is, all right, now find your way. And that is a very, very difficult thing to do. First of all, because you barely understand the landscape that's in front of you, only that you're generally somewhat interested in it. But also is that you are usually unaccustomed to having to structure things for yourself. So it's a really difficult place to sort of parachute into.
1: The thing that she said at the end is that frustration of finding truths about human nature is secondary to advancing your career. Yeah. That riptide we all feel, whether you're a first year grad student or an old guy like me and you, (laughs) you got to get pubs. You got to get on the CV. You got to get the grant. And it does seem that your quest for knowledge is a secondary component to, so did you resubmit your grant?
0: I think this is a challenge for mentors because you know the backgrounds of the students who are coming into your program. And what you have to do is get them from a place of a high degree of structure to a place where they are learning to structure tasks on their own And you have to do it not just in a... And now we get conference papers, and now we convert the conference papers to publications, and isn't that fun? You have to do it in a motivating way. You have to make sure that the people are getting excited, make sure that the people are finding the areas that they are interested in. So whatever she is experiencing, I think we have to take a certain amount of ownership as mentors and try to make sure that we can ensure you know an intellectually rigorous process, one that transitions them from dependence to independence, but also one that really just ratchets up their experience. Excitement because when we send them out the door, they are going to have to not just be able to generate ideas and excitement for themselves, but they're also going to have to spark that in the next generation of people as they themselves become the mentors. So I think we need to own this one.
1: Our second contributor is also a graduate student. This is Valerie Polad from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill.
4: I'm Valerie. I'm currently a first year grad student at UNC working with some random person named Patrick. One challenge I've had so far in academia is a lot of the commitment of academia in terms of our personal lives. Five years is a long time, especially if you're first generation and or from an immigrant family with a collectivist cultural background. I feel that the US is a Western society that has this individualistic mentality of putting yourself first and not so much thinking about the unit, I'm not used to that and I often still feel guilty for pitting my own wants and desires, such as pursuing graduate school over those of my collective family. In a similar vein, it's often difficult choosing grad school over a full-time job that has usually a much higher salary such that you still can't support your family. So if you're from a low-income family and you've been waiting your whole life to have a full-time job after undergrad, you kind of have to forfeit that and it just makes me feel a little selfish sometimes.
0: One of the things I love about Valerie's response, the fact that she chose your program over my program, notwithstanding. <laughs> She's touching on things that I have not lived through, that I have not experienced, right? And I love the fact that she's giving us this other perspective that is helpful for us as human beings, but also helpful for us as mentors recognizing what other people might be going through.
1: And in that spirit, Valerie, if you're listening, I owe you a bit of an apology because you have sat across from me in my office while I play with the baseball that I have on my table And I have looked you in the eye and said, you need to be selfish. Not in an antisocial way, but we are on a daily basis faced with a myriad of opportunities and things that we could do or could not do. Mm -hmm. And you have some agency in deciding, I'm going to be involved in this paper. I'm not going to be involved in that. And what I say repeatedly is ask yourself from a selfish perspective, is this going to going to move me forward is this going to help my career Mm -hmm. valerie i had no idea that that was going against the very grain of what your background was i gotta say maybe we could find a more efficient way of communicating than through this mechanism (laughs) there's got to be a better way i now know that and that had not occurred to me valerie thank you for that that was very very thoughtful
0: thanks valerie All right. So the first two that we've had were graduate students. The next one we have is an assistant professor, and I will let her introduce herself.
5: Hi, my name is Laura Taylor, and I'm in the School of Psychology at University College Dublin. And my research is really at the intersection of peace studies and developmental and social psychology. So as a result, basically all of my research is interdisciplinary. A general challenge is rejection. In academia, it's literally called rejection. And those acceptance rates for major grants and top journals are just so low. So kind of the sum up challenge there is just reviewer two.
1: You're damn right. (laughs) We had a whole episode on reviewer two. We did. What I really like about you highlighting that issue is not the feeling of rejection, not that you sense that your work is rejected. That word is what's used. Right. You know what's interesting is 100 years ago, I was associate editor for Psych Methods. Mm -hmm. Mark Applebaum was editor of Psych Methods, and he has been this lifelong mentor to me. One of the things he told me in the very first discussion we had about it is Never say you're rejecting the manuscript. Hmm. It was incredibly important to him. Never, ever write that in a letter. Say that you regret that you were unable to accept it. Hmm. And at the time, I'm like, dude, okay, do whatever strunken white, you know, voodoo <laughs> with language that you have. But over the years, I came to really appreciate mm-hmm. that there is a fundamental difference from me writing a paragraph saying I am rejecting your submission as opposed to I'm unable to accept it for publication. Hmm. And it seems like a little wordsmithing, but I think it runs deeper than that. And it taps right into what Laura is saying. You know, it's funny when we think about this trajectory that
0: we have had and that others who are going into academia have had, we are people who have succeeded our whole lives some of us anyway, got grades of A throughout much of what we did. I know that there are some University of Colorado C students out there um, who (laughs) managed
1: managed to succeed anyway. It's actually a B if you adjust for the altitude. (laughs) I did not know that. Yeah, yeah.
0: A mile high C is actually a B. But, you know, we are people who have risen to every challenge, and we did a dissertation. We had a group of people who told us, wow, good for you. That dissertation is great. And then we get into this world where we might submit that very dissertation out there, and we get three people who tell us it sucks. And we're like, what? No, this isn't, no, right? It's this wall that we hit with respect to our identity, and I think it's really, really tough. I actually hope that my students experience rejection throughout graduate school. I mean that in a tough, love, caring kind of way, but if you are getting your students in a cycle of submitting things and getting criticism from reviewers, I think in our role we can help them to process that criticism, learn to accept that criticism, learn to grow from that criticism learn to know what criticism is fair, what criticism is not, and just generally, you know, do a little bit of skin thickening on this. I think we absolutely need to have that to be in this profession. And I think that you and I, as people who help to guide both graduate students and early career faculty members, I think we can help out with that transition.
1: I'm a baseball guy. I like baseball. I watch baseball. I like the stats in it. Mm -hmm. If you go to the list of home run hitters, the top of all time, you know, Barry Bonds and Hank Aaron and Babe Ruth. And then there's an equal list of the all-time strikeout leaders. (laughs) And did you know in the history of baseball, the all-time strikeout leader is Reggie Jackson? Really? Yep. Mr. October. He's one of the greatest baseball players to have ever played the game. Oh, yeah. And if you adjust for the steroid era, he's also in the top 10 in all time home run hitters. Wow. Reggie Jackson.
2: Long drive right field. Well, in here. by. A big, big World Series for Reggie Jackson as he comes up with his third home run of the series.
1: And if you compare the list side by side, I actually queued up one of the lists here. Here are the strikeout leaders, Reggie Jackson, Jim Thorne, Sammy Sosa, Alex Rodriguez, Jose Canseco, Mike Schmidt, Fred McGriff, Derek Jeter, some of the greatest baseball players to ever play the game Mm -hmm. are in the top 10 of all-time strikeouts. And I like that. Because yes, there's failure. Yes, there's rejection. But you go up there and you swing and you swing and you swing and good things happen at the same time. And so, Laura, I love that. I think you're exactly right. That is a common denominator we all struggle with.
0: I really love that you tied that to baseball. It kind of warmed my heart. How about a hug? Can I get a hug?
1: Just sec. Let me slip on my spike jacket. Come on. Dude, no.
0: 100th no. episode hug? Come on. No? Okay. Oh, oh, oh. I have another surprise. So the call from the Obamas was not the only one that we got. I have more. So let's go ahead and play our next surprise 100th episode call. Are we going to get sued? (laughs) (laughs) Not by this person.
5: This is Severus Snape. I find your work so deftly straddles the line between uninteresting and uninformative. On the bright side, your episodes appear to be more powerful than my very best sleeping potion so do keep it up muggles
1: (laughs) hey i don't mean to be a stickler for details isn't he dead for those of you who haven't got to book seven um, (laughs) sorry i don't mean the character you moron i meant alan rickman oh yes he went beyond the veil that was so sad he's such an amazing actor i'm glad he pre-recorded that Yes, that was very prescient.
0: (laughs) Next up, we have one of my current students, Yi Feng, in our program in Measurement, Statistics, and Evaluation. Let's hear what she has to say.
6: To me, the biggest challenge in academia is that the research work you do may or may not have any immediate impact. So you need to have really good faith in the importance of your work and be patient about it. For example, when I chat with some of my friends who have got a job outside of academia, they would tell me that they are working on teams that develop COVID vaccine or drugs to treat cancer. So while they are busy saving the world, there will be a moment of me thinking, where does my research work go? How does it connect to the reality of life? And how can it contribute to the greater good of our society? I think this may be an even harder challenge for methodologists who are doing foundational methodological work. It's possible that we may not see the more advanced methods being applied in practice for many years. We need to make peace with it and understand it might be a long process.
1: So the thing that stands out to me is she has friends who are working on COVID vaccines and cancer (laughs) trials, whereas I talk to my friends and they're doing a nickel upstate <laughs> i need to find a better class of friends but ye you are spot on the delayed gratification right it is really hard to write something that you're especially excited about that notion that you're going to get something out there and people are going to find it and they're going to start putting it into their work it can take years 90 percent of the crap we publish no one <laughs> will ever use well thanks debbie downer yeah that
0: Oh, our job is to get what we consider to be honest attempts at ideas out there in the marketplace. And I don't mean really throwing crap out there. I mean, putting stuff out there that we think contributes to the intellectual conversation. And then we have to see where it goes. And if someone comes up with something better, I think that's a win for the field. You know, I'm not competitive in a way that it has to be me who comes up with a particular idea that people grab onto. But if you and I push things forward, I think that's terrific. You know, usually when I think about research that other people do unless it's something like E was describing you know a lot of it sounds esoteric to me but who am i to say what's esoteric you know things that sound esoteric to me might help us understand humanity better might help us to understand language better might help us to understand history better i think about some of the work that people did on the black plague and a lot of the history and cultural aspects of what was going on during the time of the black plague And that's something that, let's say, if you poked at me three years ago, I probably would have said, you know, I mean, I guess that's interesting, but whatever. And then two years ago, I'm like, holy crap, we are starting into a pandemic, and it would be really good to understand what people have gone through previously. So I think it's very hard when we put stuff out there right now to know what kind of future it's going to have. I just think it's our job to put out something that is intellectually honest, both in terms of its potential to contribute as well as its limitations.
1: And it's an ice cream sandwich. <laughs> Right. right, you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I do. <laughs> is you have no idea yeah. who in the future is going to take this thing that somebody else did and this thing that somebody else did and this thing that you did right. and bolt them together in some new way that you hadn't even imagined when you had developed your own thing. I sometimes feel like you write a paper, you roll it up into a little tube, put it into a bottle, put a cork in it and throw it off the back of a ship. hmm And there are all these bottles floating (laughs) with curled up papers in them. And that's been my entire career. All right. Our next contributor
0: with the challenge is Craig Rodriguez Sejas, also known as Jiffy's clubbing buddy in New York City at the University of Michigan. The biggest challenge that I have within the field, at least in clinical psychology, is the extent to which context, and especially sociocultural context, gets left out of discussions of what's abnormal, what's not normal psychology. And so while decontextualizing makes some research easier, it reifies other inequities, and it does leave me a place to work and a place to develop a career. Wow.
1: Oh, there are a lot of really interesting things in that. You want to start us off? Yes, is that notion, and I really like his term because I think it's true— Whether people are cognizant of it or not, it is easier to leave out context. Mm -hmm. It is easier from a measurement perspective. It's easier from a sampling perspective. It's easier from a modeling perspective to say future research will do well to consider the impact of context to generalize these results beyond what we found here. Wow. That's a great throwaway line. That just came out of you. Oh, I have a rubber stamp. It's just I can write these all day long. And in my clinical training that I have myself is my response is again, tough crap, Mm -hmm. make it harder, do the heavier lift. We owe it to the field to do that. That's my specific response. My extrapolation is... Especially if you're at the start of your career, the challenge of trying to change the status quo, this notion of feeling like you're at the gates of the citadel and how do you fight the battles that you want to fight is a much broader challenge. Sometimes I see all of academics and research and knowledge as this massive container ship out at sea mm-hmm. that needs to be turned. Oh, you can only do it in the smallest of gradations. Sure. Is you make a one degree turn in the navigation of this massive ship, and it may take a hundred miles before you observe a change. For me, it really symbolizes
0: the tension that we have in our field or in science in general. And that is, first of all, we aim for generalizability. We want these universal principles that we can carry into any situation to sort of simplify it. On the other hand, we have this need to understand individual differences, to celebrate them, acknowledge them, know how they work. Because as you and I have talked about repeatedly, things aren't one size fits all, right? The phrase, it depends, seems to govern damn near everything. So how do we find that sweet spot between this generalizability and this need to understand individual differences in not just amounts, but in relations among things? I think that some of the things that we've talked about in prior episodes, whether it's moderated nonlinear factor analysis models or integrative data analysis kinds of things, those models where we try to build the context variables into those models that we have, where the things that are generalizable are the things that have those individual difference mechanisms built into them rather than always looking for that E equals MC squared that we think works absolutely everywhere. So I love Craig's point, and I love that I think a lot of the places where our field is trying to go methodologically is to marry those general models with those things that are more individual-specific.
1: And you and I, when we teach, and we've taught this together and we make the same kind of joke— which is kind of funny but kind of not you build up all the complexities of a particular method let's just say a confirmatory factor analysis and you have multiple factors and you have factor loadings and residuals and covariances and all of these things and you really get it all nailed down and then you say everything we've taught you is wrong what this model says is Every factor loading, every residual variance, every mean, every intercept, every covariance is exactly equal for every person in your sample. Young, old, rich, poor, private school, public school, rural, urban, Mm -hmm. anything. That lambda of 0.683 is exactly equal for every single person. But
0: what if it's not? I love that Craig brought this point up. And we really need to take seriously that that last phrase that you just pulled straight out of your butt and stamped on the end of your paper, that we see that as maybe where the richness is for the things that we can develop. All right. So the last challenge that we're going to talk about here comes from someone who has been on the podcast before. I will let her introduce herself.
2: My name is Tove Larson. I'm an assistant professor of applied linguistics at Northern Arizona University. A big challenge in academia as I see it is finding balance. We talk a lot about work-life balance, which is really, really important and something that I've personally spent many years trying to figure out. Only now, though, to realize that you also need work-work balance. Assuming that you actually manage to limit the time you spend working, your time then is going to be limited. So What do we want to spend it on? I've been saying yes to a lot of research-related things in the past couple of years, which at the time all seemed like great opportunities, and I was very happy to say yes to them. But I'm now finding myself trying to balance too many projects while also trying to be a good teacher, a good mentor, and a good colleague. I'm trying to use this experience to figure out what good work-work balance could look like. I can't say that I have it figured out.
0: I love that.
1: I got to tell you, as I was listening, my thought immediately went to the work-life balance and I thought, oh good, this will be a good one to talk about. Make sure you take time for yourself, smell the roses, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I love the work-work balance. Yeah. In all my years in this gig, I've never thought about that. It's another impossible conundrum we put our students in and I do this myself. Take time for yourself. Make sure that you stay emotionally charged. Do self-care. And why don't you have the assignment I gave you Monday at 9? You told me you were going to have this. But you should take the weekend off and really refill your sales with air. But I really thought that you would have this done by now, and I'm disappointed. Right. <laughs> why anybody voluntarily works with me is an absolute wonder. <laughs>
0: You know, I will confess up front that I am not the poster boy for saying no. I'm really not good at that. But what I will say is that you and I, as older people, serve in roles where we can mentor, whether it's students or mentor early career faculty, you and I can serve the role of what I like to call bad guy. And that is that when I have an assistant professor who has all of these opportunities, I will say in air quotes, all of these opportunities laid at their feet, I need to help that person sort through them. What are the things that are beneficial at this time? What are things that we can put off to a later time? And one of the roles I play is to just keep those things away from that person to begin with. You know, let's not put you on that committee right now. Let's not give you an extra heavy teaching load or too many preps right now, right? So part of my job is to create space for that person to thrive and to succeed and find their own intellectual footing. But the role of the bad guy is when someone comes up to this early career person and says, I would like you to serve on this dissertation committee, or I would like you to be a part of the project. I tell that person that they can say, I would love to, but my mentor said, I can't take that on right now, or I'm not supposed to do that right now. And that maybe that's something that, you know, I would be able to do in the future. Because it's a very awkward dynamic when you are a young person or a new scholar, and you have other people coming to you. You want to be a pleaser. You're in a new environment. You want colleagues to like you. And you genuinely want maybe to work on these particular projects. Or to help that particular student. But even after you have balanced life with work, your time for work is finite. And so, one of the things, even though I myself might not be a particularly good manager of my own time, as evidenced by involvement in a podcast, <laughs> what I can do for others is have them use me as that foil to try to create space for themselves so they can find that work work balance.
1: And Tova, I'm going to steal that from you and probably not credit you just given that I'm a senior person in academics. And Sorry, that's what he does. This is a professional development opportunity, a teachable moment, as we call it. (laughs) I think we should talk about both of these jointly when we think of our own work and when we are advising or mentoring or guiding others. Mm -hmm. The work life goes hand in hand with the work work. That ends our challenges, and I think that's a wonderful end to that, because that, I think, ensconces a lot of the prior things that we talked in various ways. I like that a lot. Thank you, Tova, for that.
0: Very thoughtful.
1: Oh, so we have another call. Oh, no.
5: Please. (laughs) Please,
1: (laughs) please. I got to tell you, if one of them is jiffy, I'm pulling the plug on the whole thing. (laughs) I'm just telling you now.
5: Hey, dudes, it's Arnold again. I wish I could say you've gotten better after 100 episodes, but I can't. You are still doing way too much stupid stuff. Maybe if you let Jiffy have more airtime. As you know, I love lemurs.
0: See? You're the problem here, Patrick. Oh, really? Jiffy tested so well in the focus groups that we had
1: set up. Was that the voices in your head? That you (laughs) ran your focus group? (laughs) We conducted some focus groups. (laughs) Anyway, wow, how sweet for Arnold Schwarzenegger to leave us a voice message. I think Jiffy needs a hug, Patrick. Do you have a (laughs) hug for Jiffy? (laughs) No, no. no. Jiffy needs 50 cc's of sodium (laughs) phenobarbital is what Jiffy needs. All right, let's turn to positive. Should we turn to positive? Yes. Yes. What are the joys? Because we are in a gig where these things are inextricably mixed. And indeed, some of the most frustrating things are simultaneously some of the most positive things. So let's turn to what aspects of this job really bring us happiness and fun and joy and as my brother occasionally says, gives us a job that isn't really a job. My brother is still <laughs> completely vexed that someone gives us money to do this. Right. <laughs> and technically they don't. They give us money to do something else that we're not currently doing. That's that's true, which is the beauty of it. <laughs>
0: So we're going to have the same six people, each of whom provided something that they consider a joy about academia. There's a lot of thematic overlap. And so what I thought we could do is maybe pair them up into couples that sort of overlap. So we start off with E and Craig. How about that?
6: Oh, that's great. There are many things I enjoy about working in academia. On top of the list is the autonomy to do research on things that are most interesting and intriguing to myself. You may have an idea that came to you while reading papers, sitting in a class, listening to a podcast, or even just doing grocery shopping. However it came along, and no matter how nerdy or crazy the idea is, you have the freedom to spend time working on it and dig deeper. Although not every thought will necessarily turn into a project, the learning that happens in this whole process is already fascinating in and of its own. And if with some hard work, you do successfully solve the puzzle and get to advance the current knowledge or to propose a method that does not exist before, that would bring tremendous joy and happiness. I still remember how thrilled I was the day when the first methodological paper I worked on got accepted for publication. It's just so different from any other kind of joy that you could find in your daily life.
0: The biggest joy, I think, is that I continuously get to work with and learn and I'm employed to study the things that I'm really passionate about. I also love the mentoring aspect of what I do from different types of trainees, non-trainees. I love collaborating with other scientists in our field as well. So I like the social aspect and extent and learning all the time with what we do. I love the points that both of them make. And obviously you and I have bought into the joy, right? We drank the Kool-Aid and we love being here The things that were mentioned are things that work for us, right? Autonomy works for us. You and I make our own things to study. We like doing that. That's hard for some folks, but for us, it is an absolute joy, right? Autonomy is this double-edged sword. If you can wield it well, that's great. Freedom is a double-edged sword. Even impacting students is a double-edged sword, right? Because we want to impact them in positive ways. We want to be these positive role models for them. But I have to say, being able to come up with ideas, get them out there into the marketplace, discuss them with people, have them tell us it's a crazy idea if that's what happens. I just feel so absolutely blessed to be able to do this.
1: I respond to what you just said about it doesn't work for everyone, Mm -hmm. right? Is so much of life is about goodness of fit. Knowing yourself and knowing what you enjoy and under what conditions you work well And knowing which ones you don't. And I sometimes feel like, especially if you're a graduate student, there's this pressure that one size fits all. Mm -hmm. You're going to love this job because you have autonomy. And some people respond to that and some don't. And we had that wonderful conversation with Noah about propensity scores. And he had a lovely description of where he struggled with that And then found that what he truly loves is doing the programming, the developing packages, working with individuals, and he has found a home now that he's flourishing in. It's that notion of finding out what do you want to do, what are you comfortable with, where do you flourish, how do you make the contributions that you want to make. And I like that a lot. And I like Yeez where she was saying, no matter whether it be in the grocery store or whatnot, I get a lot of ideas when I'm running. Yeah. And the funny thing is, I'm damn near hypoxic (laughs) when I get these. And you can attest to that because I have sent messages that you have responded, do I need to send help? Yeah. (laughs) You've said that a couple of times. They're so wonderfully
0: disjointed. (laughs) I have played these back for you later. And you're like,
1: yeah, I have no recollection
0: of that whatsoever.
1: That is true. And some people will do that with like drunk texting. You know, it's like, oh my God, I'm so, I'm so embarrassed. (laughs) But I like Yee's notion of you never know where they're going to come. And the big one is not all of them work. Mm -hmm. I have texted you profoundly stupid ideas. But every now and then, one kind of bubbles to the top and we can do something with it.
0: Hmm. In theory, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In theory. Uh Uh-huh. You know, and Craig used the word passionate. I also find that a double-edged sword. I am not a passionate person. You're an emotional robot. Let's just be clear about that. I would say that my emotional expression is even. Let's just go with that. There is a double-edged sword on what's your passion? Have you found your passion? Mm-hmm. But I don't feel like we're doing everybody a favor by saying you have to find your passion. And then, and we all take a deep breath and say, because if you find what you love, you never work a day in your life. Oh, oh, oh. And folks, you are legislatively allowed to slap anyone <laughs> who says that. All right, we'll just add it to the <laughs> Quantitude Slap list. Uh-huh. It's getting rather long. It is. It is. But if anybody says that, you have Quantitudes' permission to slap them. I love that notion that you can be passionate about something, but I feel like it's often an unrealistic expectation that if you're not passionate about something, then you haven't found what you should study. Yeah. So, me and my emotionally cold brethren, robots unite. <laughs> All right, my friend, we have another call. Oh, no. Let's let's see. This is how many of these are there. I
0: I don't know. Let's see.
1: (laughs) This is all new to you. Yeah, I
0: have no idea. Hi, this is Oprah Winfrey,
1: wishing Quantitude
4: a happy 100th episode. I'm actually thinking about turning Oprah's book club into Oprah's cupid club. I'll have my people be in touch.
0: (laughs) Wow.
1: That'd be so much fun. Dude. The richest woman on the planet just reached out to us. How cool is that? So for our next pairing, we're going to listen to Smriti and Laura. The
3: one thing that has kept me going, which brings me to the joy part, is the fact that I get to learn every single day, which is just so fulfilling and brings me so much joy. And not just to, you know, absorb knowledge, but then also be able to share it with other students with regards to teaching. That feels very meaningful. It's a real privilege to get to learn for a living. And although I'm not there yet to eventually be able to contribute to some body of knowledge, I think it's a source of a lot of joy for me.
5: When I think about the joys in academia, the quantity joy for me, 100% is that aha moment on your students' faces. And I think for stats, it's even more sacred because they come into this class as totally scared. They psych us out. And then they kind of come up to you and say, thanks, this is the first time I'm not scared or this is the first time that things really make sense. And so for me, that's a really fabulous part of my job. More broadly in academia, I think the joys we get paid to read. I mean, that is a blessing, right? And so we probably all got into it because we like that. And now it's great that we get to continue to do that.
0: There was a lot in both of those that really resonated with me, things like the privilege and blessing that we have associated with our job and getting to work with our students. For me, the biggest one is learning all the time. And something I have said before is that the beauty of this job is that at the end of every year, almost every year anyway, I can sort of look back and say, you know, last year I thought I understood stuff. Last year, I thought I knew how things worked. But this year, mm, I really think that I have grown a lot, that I understand things better than I did the year before. And what job has that, right? And part of the reason that that's the case is that we engage in things where learning is the objective, whether it's a research project or being on a dissertation committee or working with our colleagues. This environment is structured for us to keep learning. And I absolutely love that.
1: To reiterate your point as I love the use of the word privilege and the use of the word blessing because it really is mm-hmm. we are so fortunate to be in this position that we are I sometimes tell people that I am paid to try to create new knowledge and tell people about it. Mm -hmm. I like Laura's comment of, we get paid to read. How awesome is that? You literally get paid to read. It's not a thing you do on the side. It's not something that you do on the weekend. Yeah. So thank you, Laura. That's exactly right. I believe, Patrick,
0: we have another call.
5: (laughs) When do they end? This is Morgan Freeman. Happy 100th episode Quanted dudes. There. My agent told me that's all I have to say.
1: (laughs) How awesome is that? That is a busy guy. That's the voice of God right there. (laughs) Wow. Thank you, Mr. Freeman. I appreciate that that was the minimally viable (laughs) contribution (laughs) that you could make within the (laughs) confines of the contract.
0: All right. So we have our last two joys, and they're going to come from Tova and Valerie.
2: One thing in particular that brings me joy in academia is the sense of community that I feel. Just getting to work with people in that community, students, colleagues, collaborators, is just so rewarding. And I really like how we all share this common goal. We're trying to understand our corner of the world a little better. And getting to work toward this goal together with others is something that I just find to be extremely enjoyable. A joy,
4: though, which again is probably what keeps us all here. For me, it's that I've honestly met some of the most wonderful people in this niche quantitative methods field. Whenever I reached out to anybody, even if it's been more or less a cold call, they've always been kind, supportive, and willing to help out however possible. It's just an absolute joy to get lost in concepts with other people who are just as excited about the concepts as you are.
0: That's right, we are your Wookiee planet. You have found us. <laughs> I love the whole community point. And it's on two levels, right? The idea that you are working with a group of people and learning from a group of people, whether it's students or other faculty, going to work each day with people you like. And I really hope that you are fortunate enough to do that. I certainly am. But also, people who are just decent human beings. You know, you think about quantitative methods people as being awkward, having no social skills, et cetera all of which are accurate, but also <laughs> also fairly nice, helpful people, right? We want to go out of our way to help students and colleagues and to support work that's going on. I mean, some people actually view what we do as being that support role, right? Some people think that the quantitative folks are here to be able to support those who are substantive. Now, we think of ourselves as substantive in our own right, but we like collaboration. We want to help people, and I love that Valerie is already getting a feeling
1: for that. That's exactly right, and I like both of those as a final wrap-up in the joys because Valerie is spot on, Is there are wonderful people in this field. When I think back to my own coming up through the farm club and going through every step and every challenge is I look back and it's littered with people who I cold called and they gave help. If there's one thing that I recommend really strongly to more junior people is... Don't forget that the most senior people in the field are not only just people, but they're in it because of the love for the topic as well. Mm-hmm. When I look back as a grad student, I reached out to people like Jack McCardle, Mark Applebaum, Steve Roudenbush. I faxed a paper to Albert <laughs> Satora. Who faxed me back comments on it? <laughs> All of these were cold calls. I still, it's one of my favorite things I have. I have a first edition of Breik and Rowdenbush, their multi-level book. Mm-hmm. And if you open it to the title page, penciled in is Steve Rowdenbush's phone number at the time. <laughs> and I went to the library. All right, so we're going back in the time machine. Wow! I went to the library. I looked up the phone book in Michigan, I wrote it down, I called him, he answered the phone, he answered my question. The field is littered with people who are willing to help you and talk and have fun. And the one that Tova said that kind of stood out to me as well is that shared common goal. Yeah. In my things I do for fun, for many, many years I was involved, like you, in martial arts, And I enjoy it and there's a community and there's support and all of that. But it always left out to me that shared common goal because almost everybody on the mat was there for a different reason. Mm -hmm. Somebody was there because they wanted to lose weight and somebody else was there because they wanted to learn how to kick ass and somebody was there for whatever. For various reasons, I stopped doing that and I'm now in the music. I'm in a lot of bands Mm -hmm. and I have that shared common goal. Last night, I had band rehearsal, and there were 100 people out on the floor as we were rehearsing for an upcoming concert, and there is something unique about everybody was there for a common purpose, and working together to do that, and I think there's a parallel with academics. There is a common purpose, and there is a common draw for people, and I love that.
0: All right. So all of that said, do you have a challenge and a joy that you want to share of
1: your own? I do. I'll start with a challenge. Mm -hmm. And it's almost embarrassing for me to say. And the reason is, is I feel like I'm at a point in my career where this shouldn't be a challenge and yet it is. You remember the movie Babe and the talking pig, (laughs) right? This is one of the best movies. If you haven't seen Babe, go watch it. It's just a very sweet, funny film. And it's about a pig who, it doesn't talk to people, but it can talk to other animals. It somehow becomes like a sheep dog so that it doesn't get eaten. I'm going to spoiler alert. The very final scene of the movie is the crusty old farmer is standing with the pig at his feet. And he looks down and says... That'll do, pig. That'll do. That'll do, pig. That'll do. It's that notion of what I would like to propose as a gender free term of an attaboy. Hmm. I feel like, as a field, especially as you continue to progress in it, you get fewer and fewer attaboys down to the point where you don't get any at all. Hmm. And why it's embarrassing for me where that's a challenge is, I feel like at my age and where I am in my career, I shouldn't need that. Mm -hmm. But I still do. Every now and then, not a lot of hand-holding, not a Stuart Smalley, you're smart (laughs) enough, you're (laughs) handsome enough. Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. You do a lot of work, you send it to a colleague, and you get a reply, and it opens with, I think this is longer than it should be and we need to cut out a couple of pages, (laughs) is just put in, thanks for this. I think it's a little bit long and we should cut out a few pages. Mm -hmm. Whatever. It's just the little bits of, attaboy. I'm teaching this undergrad class. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, a young woman in the class, Kaylee, brought me a little 3D printed. It's about three inches long and about an inch high. And it just says in block letters, attaboy. And she gave it to me on the last day of class and said, now you can always have an attaboy in your office. And I have it on my desk now. The biggest challenge for me is not getting attaboys. Mm. And the compliment to that is being aware that we give other people attaboys. Mm -hmm. Because maybe you think it in your head, but you don't communicate it to the student, to your colleague, to your chair. That's my biggest challenge.
0: My only reaction to that is that I think it's something that you're actually quite good at. And in our interactions, even though I'm clearly the much nicer person, mm. um.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Mm. You are very good about acknowledging the work that other people do right up front, so I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. What is a challenge of yours? My challenge is keeping up, mm. and I could say that more broadly, like keeping up with emails. Keep it, but I actually, mean keeping up with the field. Right? Our field just has gotten so big, so much going on, and you know, if you think back to the training that you and I received back in the day. We were really good at general linear model stuff, and we learned a few other things in addition to that. And just the content domain of what constitutes our field is much, much bigger. What that means then is that the research that's going on is getting much, much more specific. And I don't have time. I have stacks of journals with Post-its attached, and I have folders full of articles that, oh, I would really love to read. It's hard to keep up. And I think I'm doing a very poor job, doing a poor job in all of the the developments that are going on, poor job in keeping up with the computational advancements, the software advancements, the applications, the packages, all of that stuff. I don't know how to keep up. And so I think back to the senior people I encountered at the beginning of my career And just sort of mentally noting that there were some things that I'd been exposed to that maybe they hadn't been exposed to or, oh, they're still using this or, oh, they're still explaining it this way. I want to go back and apologize to every one of them because it becomes impossible, especially when you're navigating administrative things and all the other stuff that goes on in this field. I feel myself slipping. And so as the old saying goes, we know more and more about less and less until eventually we know absolutely everything about absolutely nothing. And that's a convergence that I feel myself experiencing.
1: You know what I always like to say? You need to aspire for better work-work balance. (laughs) I've said that for years. Thank you. Thank you, Tova. All right. What do you got for a joy? You know what I love about this gig? It gives the opportunity for you to completely reinvent yourself. Mm. It overlaps with some of the joys that other people have talked about. But think about your own career arc when you came in. You know, maybe you come into an assistant professorship or some variant of that, right? The world has also changed where you can do research in a lot of different kinds of settings that are not your traditional academic tenure track, but you come in in your maybe early 30s, say. Mm-hmm. And barring not getting run over by a bus or struck by lightning, you probably got 40 years in the game. Hmm. What I love about this job is you can willfully and volitionally reinvent yourself during that period of time. Right. So you come in and you are like on a tear with research and you're writing grants and you're writing papers and you're going to conferences And then, you know, maybe you either get tired or you start to say, ah, there are other things. Maybe you write a book. Mm -hmm. Maybe you write chapters. Maybe you do some online, right? Now there's all online publishing and web page materials, things like that. And then you throw yourself into teaching and say, okay, I've written 100 papers. I don't want to write 101. I'm going to throw myself into teaching or mentoring or... And then you say, wow, that was really cool. Now I'm going to do administration. Now I'm going to work into whether you go across the street and be a deanaling or you become the head of your area. And then after you run that out, then you do goofball things. And in all seriousness, like this dumbass thing we do, a hundred (laughs) episodes of a podcast that has no relation to what our day job is. Yet that is my primary source of dissemination right now. Mm -hmm. So that's my joy is you get into a job that on your own willful volition, you can say, okay, I've done that. And now I'm going to go do this.
0: I like that a lot. For my joy, I'm just going to say in one word what I love, and that is the students. I have had so many great graduate students that I've had a chance to work with. And the beautiful thing about working with a great graduate student is that the graduate students are sources of energy for you, right? They help you accomplish things. Yes, there's a front end investment on getting them trained and, you know, helping them to become productive members of the intellectual community. But it is such a great partnership. They're learning. You are learning from them. And I especially love that transition. The metaphor that I've used, I don't know if it works for you, is that, you know, the relationship sort of starts off with front wheel drive. You are up there driving and maybe they're the back wheels. And then throughout their progress, you might be rear wheel drive. You might be sort of pushing them out in front a little bit to help them to take some ownership and things. And then as the relationship matures, in the end, it's front wheel drive again, but they're the ones driving. The students for me are absolutely the reason that I love this job and wouldn't trade it for anything else.
1: I agree. And I have nothing to add to that. So do you want to end with a hug now? Look at me. Look at me in the eye. We're on Zoom. We're looking at each other right now. Do I look like a man who wants to hug you? (laughs) That's what I thought. All right. Well, then how about our last caller? Oh, no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we'll go ahead and play the caller. I would just say thank you to you for the last three seasons, for the last 100 episodes overall. It remains
1: largely a pleasure to work with you, (laughs) and I'm psyched about next year with you. The same back to you. It's kind of remarkable that three years have gone by since we were sitting on the bench in the construction area that you took me to that is called Baltimore Inner Harbor. Uh Uh-huh. It has been nothing but fun. And to listeners, thank you. Thank you for tolerating us. Thank you for squandering your time in this way. Yeah. And remember, don't let the bastards grind you down. There you go.
5: This is Eric Cartman from South Park. You know. A show that actually has, like, a lot of episodes. And like your sad little 100 Quantitude episodes. So, screw you guys. I'm going home.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. On that note. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Quantitude on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you waste 100 hours of your life. One hundred hours. And please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod. And check out our webpage at QuantitudePod.org for past episodes, playlists, show notes, transcripts, and other cool stuff. Finally, you can welcome an entire summer without having to listen to us with Quantitude merch at RedBubble.com where all proceeds go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude. Imagine how horrible it would be without post-processing. I
0: know of scarcely anything
1: so apt to impress
0: the imagination. It would have persona f***.
1: (laughs) Would have persona (laughs) It would have persona (laughs) 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 Start again putting my theory in dire risk by removing that and seeing what the implications are but I'm going to pause because I forgot the second point I was going to make <laughs> everything we've talked about up to now has been on measured variables mm. Gauss-Markov one of my favorite theorems exogeneity is one of their assumptions ooh. I know right
0: ooh say it again
1: exogeneity oh yeah okay, all of that's getting cut out,
0: <laughs> and yet we somehow forget that there's this opera and yet we somehow f- <laughs> you <laughs> making a plan and then treating it like what, what something <laughs> that we're stuck with that that once we lock in we're we're stuck
1: my butt tattoo of roseanne
0: <laughs> uh. My sump pump just kicked on. I'm going to have to close that door.
1: I don't even want to visualize what's being pumped right now. So if you can do anything to get this out of my head, Uh, uh I would super appreciate that.
0: All right, Ethan. The Soundcraft VI-3000 96-channel compact...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Jiffy language. This is a family show and if we shove a carton way out to the edge of the ship but it makes mm-hmm. my observed moment structure closer to my observed moment structure did i say that right i'm not sure because <laughs> you were listening so carefully
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely and that's and that speaks to and that also speaks to the it's going to speak to something for fuck's sake hang on <laughs> I have a tiny earthquake story. Should I insert it with my 30 seconds? We're second getting pretty deep. If
1: it's quick, right, go no ahead, problem. but
0: we're- No, whatever. All right. Let's just imagine I did and we cut it. Okay.
1: <laughs> well, that was a time saver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should do that more often. Um... <laughs> wow, and there was the 30 seconds for the earthquake story. We could have done. done the damn earthquake. Okay, You're back done. to- it. All right, come on, Hancock. Cut. Back to it. All right. <laughs>